Maura Murray. Maura Murray was attending the University of Massachusetts Amherst as a nursing student when she disappeared. On February 9, 2004, Maura Murray crashed her car on an icy road in New Hampshire, which is over 100 miles from her dorm room. She was never seen again. There's been many questions circling her disappearance. So first, let's figure out what was happening in her life just before she disappeared. February 5, 2004. Just four days prior to her disappearance, Maura talked to her sister Kathleen on the phone while on the job and discussed her issues with her fiancé. Around 10.30 p.m. that night, her supervisor reported that she went to Mara's desk and found her in tears, in quotes, staring straight ahead into an empty space, while her textbook for nursing was open right in front of her. February 7, 2004. That Saturday and two nights before her disappearance, Mora's father, Fred, arrived in campus. He took Mora car shopping that afternoon and then took Mora along with her friend to dinner. Mora then dropped her father off at his motel room, borrowing his car as she returned to the campus for a party. At 2.30 a.m., she left the party. At 3.30 a.m. on the way back to the motel, she struck a guardrail on Route 9, causing $10,000 worth of damage to her father's car. She was driven to her father's motel, where she stayed for the rest of that morning. The next morning, February 8th, just a day before her disappearance, her father rented a car and dropped more off at the university, and left her to go back home. At 11.30 p.m. that night, Fred calls his daughter to remind her about obtaining an accident form. 30 minutes later, she uses her personal computer to obtain directions to a place in Vermont. The day she disappeared, February 9, 2004, at 1pm, she emailed her boyfriend, in quotes, I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. She later made a phone call about renting a condo in New Hampshire, which did not pan out. At 1.13pm, she made a call to a classmate for unknown reasons, and later at 1.24, emailed her supervisor that she was going to be gone for a week due to a death in her family. However, it was found that there were no death reported. At 2.05 p.m., she called a number that helped her with a possible hotel booking in Vermont. At 2.18, she left her boyfriend a voicemail about talking later. In her car, she packed clothing, toiletries, textbooks, and birth control pills. However, when her room was searched later, the police found most of her belongings packed up in boxes and art removed from the walls. A printed email to Maura's boyfriend was also found that indicates some trouble in the relationship. At 3.30 p.m., she drove off campus in her black Saturn sedan. At around 3.40 p.m., she withdrew $280 at a nearby liquor store where she purchased $40 worth of alcohol that included Bailey's, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Francia wine. CCTV footage shows that she was alone when she made all of her purchases. Sometime that day, she went to the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles to pick up accident report forms, as her father told her to. Mora then left Amherst and went towards north on Interstate 91. That day at 7 p.m. in New Hampshire, a resident heard a loud noise and saw a car crashed into a snowbank along Route 112 while going west. The neighbor called the Grafton County Sheriff at 7.27 p.m. to report the accident. Another neighbor also reported that she saw the car as well as someone walking around the vehicle. A bus driver also noticed a young woman who he reported as not bleeding but shivering. He offered to call for help but she apparently pleaded for him not to and she told him that she had already called AAA, which according to 
to reports, AAA had no record of any call. The bus driver eventually drove off but called the police. At the scene, the Haverhill police said that the car was inoperable after the accident. The car was apparently locked with a bunch of her belongings, but the items that were missing was her debit card, credit card, and cell phone. Between 8 and 8.30 p.m., a contractor coming home from work saw a young person quickly moving on foot about 4 to 5 miles east of where the vehicle was. That was the last time she was seen. Diane Louise Augit Diane Louise Augit was a 40-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman who was last seen leaving her home at Chesapeake Drive in Odessa, Florida at approximately 11 a.m. on April 10, 1998. A day later, on April 11th, a witness apparently saw Diane on a walk going north towards US-19 near New York Avenue in Hudson, Florida. Additionally, she did not have any of her necessary medication since she was last seen. Diane's mother, had received a phone call from her daughter on April 13, just three days after she disappeared. However, since no one was home, the answering machine recorded the message that said, Help! Help! Let me out! While it sounded like someone grabbed the phone from her while she is heard in the back saying, Hey, give me that! And then, the call ended. According to the caller ID, the call was placed from a number registered to a business in Odessa, Florida called Starlight. Five days after the disappearance and just two days after the voice message, on April 15th, 1998, the tip of Diane's right middle finger with the nail painted red was found in New York Avenue area. This is the same area that the last witness said they saw her on April 11. Two weeks after her disappearance, a bag of Diane's clothes was found neatly folded inside the store's outdoor freezer. In the year of 2000, two years after her disappearance, and after the St. Petersburg time ran a story on her disappearance, another bag labeled Diane, containing eyeliner, perfume, lipstick, and toothpaste, was found at a local Circle K store in Pasco, Florida, by Diane's brother's girlfriend. Diane's mother confirmed that the item found were in fact her daughters. There is one lead we can follow. One of the last places Diane was in fact seen was at the Coral Sands Motel at the time, and at that time, it was managed by Gary Evers and his girlfriend. In 2001, Evers was charged with murder for killing a man. Though he had no criminal record prior to that incident, he was in fact considered as a suspect for Diane August's disappearance. Mary Virginia Carpenter Mary Virginia Carpenter, when she disappeared, was a 21-year-old young woman from Texarkana, Texas. She went missing in Denton, Texas in the summer of 1948. It was June 1st. Mary Virginia boarded a Texas and Pacific Texas Special No. 31 in Dallas at Union Station in Texarkana at 3 p.m., and it stopped in Denton, Texas around six hours later. She was headed towards Texas State College for Women, or the TSCW campus, to enroll for the summer course. On the train, she met Marjorie Webster, who was also enrolling at TSCW from Texarkana. When they arrived to the station, they both hired a taxi who was driven by Edgar Ray Zachary, or Jack, to take them to the college dorms. When her friend was dropped off at the dormitory, Mary Virginia realized she had forgotten to check on her trunk at the station. She asked the driver the cost to take her back and he replied with 75 cents. 
Her friend Marjorie asked her if she wanted her to come along, but Mary Virginia refused. After arriving at the station, she tried to get her trunk but came back saying that she could not get it. Mary Virginia then talked to the employee at the railroad named Mr. Butchwell, who went on to say that her trunk would not arrive until later. The taxi driver told Mary Virginia to sign the back of the claim check and told her that he would pick it up and deliver it to her by the morning. Mary Virginia agreed and gave him her luggage receipt, writing Virginia Carpenter, room 200 Breckenridge, and then tipped him an extra dollar. When the taxi driver brought Mary Virginia at the Breckenridge Hall at 9.30 p.m., the taxi driver said he saw a yellow convertible parked in the front with no lights whatsoever. His reports state that Mary Virginia had walked towards the convertible with the two young men standing right beside it. One was apparently tall and the other was short and stocky. Mary Virginia asked them what they were doing there and the taxi driver reports that Mary Virginia was very surprised to see them there. According to the taxi driver, the shorter boy had lifted Mary Virginia onto the curb as she told the driver to place her luggage on the floor since the boys were apparently going to assist her. Additionally, she also told the taxi driver to leave the trunk in that same spot the next morning. After the driver complied, he drove off. This was the last time anyone had seen Mary Virginia Carpenter. Another report came in from the night watchman, who also saw the girl get out of a cab and get into the convertible. However, the police chief Jack Shepard denied it. The next morning, Zachary dropped off the trunk at the same exact spot as she discussed. Despite the money raised to help find her, airplanes scanning the entire region, and the help of 150,000 police officers, very little replies came in about the investigation. July 9th, that Friday, the taxi driver then took a polygraph test which concluded that his story of events were true. Chief of Police Jack Shepard also mentioned that he had talked to the boys with the cream color convertible but was not able to connect them to her disappearance. On June 9, 1955, Mary Virginia was considered dead by Texas law. The Sauter Children December 24, 1945, on Christmas Eve, a fire broke out in the Sauter household and destroyed their home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. It was occupied by George Sauter, Jenny Sauter, and the 9 out of 10 of their children. George, Jenny, and four children were able to escape, but the bodies of the other five children were not found. The Sauters believed to their graves that their children that are missing survived somehow. They eventually converted their home site into a memorial garden for their lost children, and they even raised awareness by putting up a billboard at the site which can be seen along the state Route 16 at the time. It remained up until the death of Jenny Sauter in 1980. Though the fire department's findings show that the fire was electrical in nature, the Sauters noted that he had the house rewired as well as inspected recently. He and his wife suspected that an arson was to blame. George Sauter specifically believed that the Sicilian Mafia had taken his children in retaliation to his criticism of Mussolini and the fascism back in his home country, Italy. State and federal investigation efforts in 1950s eventually turned cold. However, in the 60s, the family received a picture of one of the boys missing as an adult. Today, their one daughter that's currently alive, along with their grandchildren, is continuing the investigation in the media and online. Shelley Miscavige 
In the late 2005, just a little over 11 years ago, Shelley Miscavige disappeared. Though many in the Scientology religion would say she isn't missing, we found new and confirmed sources who were actually in the INT base or gold base that personally saw events that led up to Shelley's sudden departing. Those sources also confirmed that it was back in 2005. The issue is, we know where Shelley is, and it isn't a secret because more and more evidence confirms her location today. However, the scariest part about this entire situation is not that she is missing, but it's because we know where she is and she needs our help. Shelley Miscavige, if you don't already know, is the wife of David Miscavige, who is the current Scientology leader. She once had helped him run the organization. However, for some reason, David has locked up his wife in a small compound somewhere in the mountains of Los Angeles. According to multiple sources, when asked about memories of Shelley, most weren't positive. She was, in fact, a Sea Org executive along with her husband who berated people to make sure they were in line. However, in 2005, her marriage with David was completely falling apart. In 2004, Miscavige took the top executives totaling to about 100 people and put them in an office prison now called The Hole, where they were held for years, sleeping on the floor and eating from buckets of slop. Every executive that was not imprisoned began to walk on eggshells hoping not to be put into the hole, and this is including his wife Shelley. Therefore, she began working hard and making sure he was happier with her performance. However, when David was not pleased one day, he apparently threw a psychotic fit and a week later, Shelley vanished. For more than 10 years, except for the few days she was allowed out for her father's funeral, Shelley is still currently imprisoned in the compound called the following names, Twin Peaks, Rim Forest, Rim of the World, or Crestline. She is not allowed to attend events, nor is she allowed to even see her own family, and has very limited information on the outside world. When Leah Remini, who has recently created the stir since leaving the organization, reported Shelley missing, the detective threw out the report and said that detectives found her alive and well and did not want to make a public statement. When detectives were asked if she was around Scientology executives during the time of visitation, the lieutenant said that it was classified information that he couldn't reveal. However, we have recently found that since then, the detective Lieutenant Andre Dawson had been a frequent participant in numerous Church of Scientologist events. Today, we don't know the fate of Shelley or if she will ever be allowed to leave the prison of a compound, but until Shelley finds a way to escape, I don't think we will ever really know the truth. Thank you for watching and please like and subscribe for more content.